to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack, and today our guest is Tim Little. And Tim is the founder and CEO of Zana Investments, a Tampa-based real estate syndication firm named after his two daughters, Zara and Lana. And he started investing in real estate with a duplex back in 2014 and has since then grown his portfolio to 357 co-owned units valued at over $60 million. He's also the host of a top-rated podcast, Journey to Multifamily Millions, where he talks with experts in the field of investing in multifamily properties. So be sure to say hi to him over there as well. And outside of real estate, he's the commander of an Army Reserve Public Affairs Battalion based in San Antonio, Texas. So Tim, I'm super honored to have you here on the show today. Welcome and how are you doing? Thank you for having me on. It's great to be here. I'm doing great. Tim, can you give us a little bit of a background into you know who you are and how you got started with real estate? Sure. And so I guess my real estate journey goes back to, you know, when everybody was looking at real estate uh, back during uh, the boom times. And like a lot of people, I was watching, you know, HGTV and all that stuff. And saw everyone getting rich from flipping and, and buying houses. And, and I wanted to get into, at the time, I was still active duty military and, you know, had just gotten back from one deployment and, went to one of these conferences back then. This is like 2005, something like that. And you know, there was a bunch of alcohol gurus is selling courses back then on CD or how you can go driving for dollars and convince little old ladies to sell their house for you know 30% than what it's worth and all this stuff. And it kind of piqued my interest for a little bit, but then I got like a lot of people, I got distracted by life, you know, wound up going on another deployment and I kind of forgot about real estate for a little while. And I kind of consider myself lucky given the timing um, because I certainly didn't want to be going all in in 2006, 2007. So again, I'll just consider myself lucky that I didn't get into it then. And so it wasn't until really after grad school when I was getting a regular job again and had some income that I was like, I need to start investing. And I think I had read Rich Dad, Poor Dad for the second time. And this time I felt like I was in a place in my life where I could actually apply some of the lessons that that resonated with me from that book. So that's when I started doing what so many people do, listening to the podcasts and, you know, reading every book they could get. And The one thing that I decided uh, when I started investing in real estate is that I was not going to do single family. And when I say that, I I don't mean that I was going to go big straight out the gate, but I wanted to at least get a duplex. And the reason for that, part of it was risk mitigation, right? That's something we always talk about in the military is how can we mitigate risk in this operation? And that was something that I was thinking about because if you have a single family home, it's either rented or it's not. You're either at 0% occupancy or 100% occupancy. And so I didn't really like the idea of of having to pay that mortgage every month if I didn't have a renter in there. And so I started looking for a duplex. Unfortunately, I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time. 
And it wasn't really a viable option to buy a duplex in that area because it was prohibitively expensive. Um, so, you know, I started looking at those concentric circles around me and said, hey, what's the next most affordable place I could go to? And started looking at Richmond. And so Richmond was only about, uh, was an hour and a half, two hours away. And so my wife and I decided to make a weekend of it, linked up with a realtor and checked out probably five or six duplexes in one weekend, just touring one after the other. And I had criteria that I had set off the bat. I wanted to get $200 a month cash flow from each door. And we finally found one that worked for $85,000. And it's kind of crazy to think that I was able to get a duplex for $85,000, but it was old. But it cash flow and it wasn't in the greatest part of town. But again, I was looking at numbers and not necessarily thinking about all those other things that I learned to think about later, like the tenant base and and stuff like that. So certainly learned some valuable lessons. But that first duplex was really where I got my first start. And that was with, you know, a a down payment of, I think, $22,000, something to that effect, because I found out that I had to put 25% down, which I wasn't prepared for. Um, and that was kind of a rude awakening. I was so used to paying, you know, three or 5% for my own house because of FHA and the VA loan and stuff like that, that I never had to put that much down on a property. So that was a, a bit of a rude awakening, but again, it was an investment. So that's where I, I took my first leap into real estate investing. When you said that you read Rich Dad, Poor Dad for the second time before you started to apply those concepts and things like that to your investing journey, what happened the first time when you read it? And did you take any action at that time? And then what changed the second time that you read it? And I think that's the the difference. The first time I didn't really take any action other than, like I said, going to like a real estate conference and buying a $600 instructional set on CD. So you could argue, I tried to educate myself a little bit, but then, like I said, life kind of got in the way and I was all over the place for a little while between grad school and traveling. I just wasn't able, I think, to focus in order to put it into action that and I mean, money was a part of it, right? You know, when I was in grad school, it was basically like, okay, I'm a poor student again. Like I was making fine money when I was on active duty. But once you go back to school mode, you have to tighten up the belt a little bit. And I felt like I didn't have any money to save. Like there was no such thing as extra to me. And I think that's a a big mental block that a lot of people get to whether, you know, they're in college or whether they're not making a lot, or they just don't have a lot of disposable income, they convince themselves that there is no extra money. And so they don't feel like they have anything to invest. So, you know, why look into it that much and why go down that that road? But once I, I did, you know, have a decent job and was able to set aside money, then I felt like I was in a place where I had something to invest. And it also became more of a priority. You know, once I was married and I was like, I'm going to be starting a family soon. So it's that shift in priorities as well, I think. 
And so talking about like going to grad school and school and and not having extra income to think about investing because all of it's going to other expenses and you're going to school, you have school debt and everything like that. So all of that money just seems to disappear into thin air. Everything that you're making in, it's coming in and just going right back out. So as you were in that situation, in that environment, how did you start saving a little bit here and there to start building up the income that you needed in order to invest you know, in the first duplex and start building it out from there? Yeah. Unfortunately, when I was in grad school, I wasn't just making no money. I was going negative because I was <laughs> taking school loans. So I was going in the wrong direction. And we can talk about whether that's the right or wrong decision or not, but I think that's up to the individual, right? Um, you have to to weigh out. I'll never say it was the wrong decision because I, I met my wife in grad school, so I can't say that. It's totally worth it. But I did come out of grad school with 130000 in total school loan debt. And that's that's kind of devastating <laughs> when you you try not to think about it. But what I did was I made a plan because, again, that's what... What I learned in the military, you need to do, you need to make a plan. Like, okay, no point in crying about this. Let's just figure it out. And so the first thing that I realized was I had several different loans, right? And that makes it harder to keep things straight in and of itself, just to get your your finances in order. So the first order of business for me was to consolidate those loans. Now, most people know it's pretty hard to consolidate and refinance school loans, but that's not necessarily the case if you have the right degrees. So this is where my advising to young people would be, think about what degree you're getting because it could make a big difference. And I think I used SoFi and they were one of the few organizations that was willing to refinance and consolidate my grad school loans because I had gotten an MBA. So they basically think you're a good bet. You're going to be good for the money eventually. And so some of my school loans, my grad school loans were as high as 8%. And that's high for school loans. And, you know, especially when you're talking $20,000, $30,000 a piece. So I was able to consolidate all those loans down to, I think it was like 5.25. And then at that point, I had a lower rate overall. And I also had one payment that I was making versus three or four. So one, just reducing that confusion made it less stressful. Uh, But also I was saving myself probably tens of thousands of dollars through the consolidation and getting that, that lower rate. So that was the first part. And then I told myself that I was going to start aggressively paying these off. I know some people, you know, oh, well, maybe they'll be forgiven, this and that. I couldn't depend on that at the time. So my goal was to pay them off as fast as possible. So instead of paying the minimum payment of $1,200, I think it was, I was paying $1,500 a month or $1,600 a month, whatever I could afford. And so what did that necessitate? Hey, we lived below our means, right? We bought in Washington, D.C. in a neighborhood that other people weren't willing to buy in. So we we got a nice house, but it wasn't in the most glamorous neighborhood. It was, you know, what I would call gentrifying one day, maybe, but not quite there yet. And so we were able to get more house for the money while other people were buying houses my age for 350, 400,000 mm-hmm. in the DC area. We bought in South DC for 250,000. And that came to benefit us later. 
But the point is our mortgage was much lower. So that allowed me to pay off more towards my debts. We weren't going out to eat every night. So a lot of it came down to that personal finance piece and really being aware of the spending so that you could shift that money towards those loans and aggressively pay them off. And at the same time, I was also trying to to save so that I could invest something too. So that's where, again, not going out all the time, some of that money got shifted towards kind of like a savings for an investment that one day I planned to do. So between my wife and I, who luckily had zero school loans, you have that perfect partnership there where you're going to, you're investing in each other already, right? But then you're able to pull your resources and, you know, do your first real estate investment by if each of you has 10,000 saved up. Well, there's the 20,000 for that first investment property right there. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. Yeah, you know, a a lot of people, when they're trying to pay off their student debts or other type of debt, they typically like to pay, you know, just the minimum because maybe sometimes that's all they can afford is just paying off the minimum. But over time, that's just going to the interest. And so as you're reviewing your loans over time, that principle never really goes down. And you just feel like you're just giving money every single month, but nothing's moving. You're not moving the needle. And so when you're able, like if you're able to pay higher than just the minimum and start eating away at the actual principle itself, you're able to quickly pay off that debt faster. You're able to see the needle moving than just the minimum interest payments and then having that continue to accumulate over time and start compounding. Yeah, exactly. I mean, school debt, the way I tell people, it's basically like a dark cloud that just looms over you until you get rid of it. And it can have an effect on your mindset. You know, you just feel like you can't escape it. It's just like a heavy weight that's sitting there. And that's why I was like, the sooner I can get rid of this heavy weight, the sooner I could dispel this cloud, the better. And that's eventually what wound up happening. You know, when we went to sell our house in DC in 2016, our house had appreciated in value, you know, from 250 to say three, 345, something like that. And so, we were able to take that appreciation. And of course, these are the kind of money decisions that you need to talk about with your spouse. But my wife is like, just take it, just pay off the debt. (laughs) And so luckily from that point, I had gotten my debt down from 130,000 to like 83,000, which is still a lot, but (laughs) it's a lot less than what I had originally, again, because I was paying it off so aggressively. And so I literally wrote a check for like, 83,000 and change to pay off all of my school debt. 
And it's the biggest check I've ever written. And it hurts. <laughs> but the feeling of knowing that that debt isn't there far outweighs any of the pain of having to write the check itself. And I really respect the decision that you and your wife made also to, you know, not try to keep up with the Joneses. And while everybody was buying these three hundred, four hundred thousand dollar houses, you know, you really looked at your finances and what made sense for the two of you at that time? What could you do? And so even though it might sometimes feel like you're taking a step back and you're not making the progress as people around you are, but that step back and just taking a little bit of more time to really set that foundation propels you so much further down the future, even though you're not seeing it immediately. Yeah, it's not always easy to have that long-term view, especially when you're in your like, you know, your your 20s, early 30s. But uh, at, at the same time, you, you know, you, you want to give your, your future self a little credit. And you also have to take into account your personal situation too, right? Like we hadn't had a, our first child yet. And so you could save a little bit more money. Babies are expensive. So once you have one or two or three of those, then that's a lot more money that you know you're going to be committed to, to spending. <laughs> so the more you can get done... Prior to that point, I think the better. And then, yeah, we wound up having our daughter in 2015. And so that's one of the reasons we moved to Tampa after that. Because, I mean, if we had we had our daughter when we first moved to DC, I don't know that we would have moved to that same neighborhood, just different considerations for where, where you at in your life. But yeah, I definitely agree that if you can take that long view and think about that ultimate reward down the road versus the immediate satisfaction of the now, then you'll be much better off. So after you had purchased that duplex, fast forward to where you are today and how did you get to where you are? Yeah. So I told you that I wasn't going to do single family. And so I started with small multifamily, but I started doing the math on it and everyone, their freedom number, try to figure out how many units they need to own in order to never have to work again, which I mean, I don't know, I'd still work, but still. And I was like, okay, it's like 50 units. I need like 25 duplexes, 30 duplexes. And it just didn't seem realistic to me. And so I knew there had to be a better way to scale and that's when I got introduced to like the commercial multifamily side of things, apartments. And I started to hear about the benefits of scale, you know, still get a lot of the same tax benefits associated with any type of real estate. And so I think I went to like Brad Sumrock event in Texas, and that was my first time really being exposed to it. And it was kind of like drinking from a fire hose, but I was like, okay, this is a real thing. So that's when I decided that's something I, I definitely wanted to, to get into. But what I wanted to do was not pay 20000 for a coaching program right then because I was too new to it. I still had a lot more to learn. And I wasn't ready to commit to the coaching aspect because I was about to go on a deployment again for like a year. And so I figured I'd take that time to really learn, right? Dig into the books again, dig into the podcast again, specifically on the commercial multifamily. And I said, you know, one of the best ways for me to learn is by passively investing myself, right? I call it, you know, learn while you earn because I, you can either, you know, pay someone else to educate you or you can 
invest your money. And then because you're investing money in someone's deal, you absolutely have the right to ask questions. And just going through that process is one of the best ways to learn how it works. And then eventually I came to realize that if I was going to do that actively, it was a great way to understand uh, you know, the passive investor's perspective. And so I got into my first passive investment, I think in 2017, it was like a 127 unit in San Antonio. And once that actually worked out, there's those first few months where maybe you haven't gotten a distribution yet. But once you get that first distribution check and you're like, okay, this is real. Like my money is not going to disappear and I'm not going to be on the next episode of American Greed. Like it's just like this sigh of relief. And that's kind of when the light bulb goes off. And I was like, yeah, this is something I want to do. So it really started with that passive investment. That was kind of the proof of concept for me. And then from there, really started to network much heavier into the commercial real estate side of the house. And then you know, go to more conferences. And until I got on my first deal as a general partner, which was in 2019 with a group of folks that I just kind of gelled with, and we all wanted to take down our first deal. So we were able to do that luckily here in Tampa, which is in my backyard. And that was my first one. And I didn't raise any money on that deal, but I brought money to the table. I was boots on the ground so I could help out because I live in Tampa. So I tried to find where I could really add value to that partnership coming in. And that's the key, right? Just once you get your foot in the door, again, being a part of the deal is one of the biggest learning opportunities, I'd say. So Tim, how has real estate investing impacted your life? So I think what it's done is, I mean, I'm not going to say I'm like, you know, rich on the beach sipping my ties, but that's part of the point, right? This is a long-term game. This is not a get rich quick scheme. This is get wealthy over the long-term plan. And that's exactly what I'm doing now. I don't feel like at this point that I have to uh, rely on my military retirement, which I'll have when I turn 56. I think that'll just be fun money now because I will have built up the wealth that I need through these real estate investments that I'm continuing to put in place that mature over the course of four years, five years, six years. So if you build that pipeline of investments and those things are coming to fruition, it's really building up your wealth in a way that just working at a, a job couldn't do or just investing in your 401k couldn't do. It's planting all these little seeds and acorns and storing them away. And then over time, you're watering the plants and they start to grow and become these very fruitful giant trees. So that'll be nice. Absolutely. And Tim, what is the one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first got started? Yeah. So I guess I probably would have just go bigger sooner. I hear a lot of people say that. And that's because... You know, the amount of work and, and time that you need to put into, like if you're self-managing your own like small multifamily or a couple of small multifamilies, that is a lot of, of time and money involved in that. And if I would have known that before, then I probably would have just shifted that effort and that focus to the commercial multifamily, the syndication side of things. Cause I had a triplex too. And because it was local, 
I was like, oh, I'll just self-manage. And that was, I mean, it cash flowed great, but it was a nightmare when you're like getting calls from tenants all the time. And you try to be cool about it and go to the property and like fix stuff and tell everyone that you're just the property manager. And they're like, we know you're the owner. <laughs> uh, there's no fool in them. So. And Tim, what is the one thing that sets the successful people apart in real estate investing? I think that one's easy for me. It's taking action. Because I mean, I've been guilty myself of, you know, the whole analysis paralysis thing, never feeling like you quite know enough to take that next step. And so you're like, oh, if I just read one more book, if I just listen to one more podcast, like then I'll be confident enough to do this. You just have to do it. Like (laughs) just take that first step. Even if you slip up a little bit, even if you make mistakes, those will be lessons that you can carry on to that next step that you better take in the next one and the next one. So I would say taking action is the biggest differentiator between those who are successful and those who aren't. And where can our listeners find out more about you, Tim, and what you're doing? Sure. I try to stay active on LinkedIn. I'm also on all the other socials, Instagram, TikTok, et cetera. So I'm sure you'll have the links to all of those. They can also go to my website, zanainvestments.com. And then if they want to get a, a free gift, they can get my passive investor cheat sheet, which gives them plain language definitions for all these multifamily terms and the jargon that we use so that it's not so intimidating. Just go to zanainvestments.com slash cheat sheet. Tim, thank you so much for all of your time today. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. It was a great conversation. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. If you're anything like Zayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, Check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Sayla and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonavestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.